You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm old enough to remember when anti gay bigots didn't have gay friends. Mike Huckabee uh, this week, last week, announced that he has gay friends as he runs around the country stumping for anti-gay organizations, as he advocates discrimination against gay people and couples, as he suggests that being gay is a choice like being an alcoholic is a choice. Uh, Mike Huckabee has gay – he wants to reassure America that he has gay friends just like Sarah Palin has gay friends. In 2008, we heard about Sarah Palin's imaginary gay friends. Just like Rick Santorum in 2012, we heard all about rabidly anti-gay Rick Santorum's imaginary gay friends. I like to imagine that Mike Huckabee's imaginary gay friends get together with Rick Santorum's imaginary gay friends and Sarah Palin's imaginary gay friends and they have imaginary hot imaginary gay sex in Mike Huckabee's guest room. And I like to imagine that if Mike Huckabee actually has gay friends, they're aware of all of his anti-gay activism. There is not an anti-gay movement or rally that that motherfucker isn't at running his mouth attacking gays and lesbians, impugning even the motives of gays and lesbians who just want equal treatment under the law, suggesting that what we're really after is to persecute Christians. Huckabee this week said – and Huckabee is running for president, everybody. That's why I'm running my mouth about Mike Huckabee, fundamentalist evangelical Christian. We have actually an evangelical Christian on the show later today of a different stripe. But Huckabee, fundamentalist evangelical Christian, said this week that allowing same-sex couples to marry, legal same-sex marriage, is akin to forcing Jewish people to eat bacon and serve shrimp. Jews, of course, live in a country – full of people eating shrimp and bacon, right? And it's no skin off there. Not all, and there are lots of Jews out there who eat bacon and shrimp and are happy to serve it to anyone who likes it. But Mike Huckabee, in their imagination, having, knowing in the tortured, persecution, martyr, complex, horse shittery that is fundamentalist evangelical Christianity today, knowing that there are people out there who are legally free to do that which your faith forbids you to do is somehow persecution. Anyway, we've been round and round about this particular topic with Christians, that legal same-sex marriage is not an imposition on them, that nobody is required to get gay married. Not even queer people who don't wish to marry are required to marry, despite what you may have read on some Tumblr posts about homonormativity and the crushing fascist gay marriage agenda from the left that they object to. Nobody is required to get gay married. Not Mike Huckabee, not you, queer person who opposes marriage on ideological grounds. Not a requirement. And Mike Huckabee is not required to officiate. Mike Huckabee is not required to attend. Evangelical Christians and others put up with and tolerate legal divorce, although it is a sin, although Jesus condemns it explicitly in the Bible in his own words in a gospel, which he never does with same-sex relationships or homosexuality, condemns divorce and they tolerate legal divorce in this country and they can learn to tolerate legal same-sex marriage. This is not the point I want. We've been making this point for 20 years and we're winning, right? We're winning the marriage debate. Point made. Huckabee's losing. This – Huckabee's string of comments in the last week about gay people and about how he has gay friends that he likes very much as he runs around the country attacking them, attacking his gay friends. 
What I think is interesting about this is just that, what that points to, that religious conservatives are making the same old hoary bullshit, easily torn apart arguments uh, about same-sex relationships and gay marriage, whatever. Been there, heard that. This is new though. This constant, Sarah Palin has gay friends, Rick Santorum has gay friends, Mike Huckabee has gay friends. What does that mean? Well, that points to the success of people coming the fuck out, really. The beginning of the movement for LGBT civil equality was people telling the truth about who they were. It was easy for these people 20, 30 years ago, even 15 or 10 years ago, to attack gay people, to attack lesbians, to attack bi people, to attack trans people. Still too easy to attack trans people and trans people are now the – Pinata du jour, a lot of religious conservatives who are going after trans people using the bathroom and demagoguing and fear-mongering about that. But as people come out, as people have come out and gotten to know the queer people that they always knew, they just didn't know they knew them because they weren't out. But once they came out, they didn't want to listen to an anti-gay politician who insulted their friend, their coworker, their kid, their parent, their sibling. And so they're trying to thread this needle, the Huckabee, Santorums, and Palins of the world where they're trying to craft an argument for the same old batch of anti-gay bullshit discrimination and laws while saying, but hey, you know, I've got gay friends too. You can have gay friends. You can love your gay kid and still support their civil inequality, still support their oppression. It's interesting to watch them twist themselves into these knots. It isn't going to work because the same people who love their gay kids or their lesbian coworkers or their trans parent those people are not going to be down with this. But hey, I got gay friends. Join me in this gay bashing political campaign and my imaginary gay friends. They make it all okay. So you can expect as the GOP primary campaign heats up and all these, the Rand Pauls, the Chris Christie's, the Mike Huckabee's, the Rick Santorum's, the Ted Cruz's, as they all trot up to their podiums, they are going to say horrible anti-gay things. It is required of them by their shrinking, terrified, white, Christianist base. They will say anti-gay things and they will preface them with my gay friends. I have gay friends. And the follow-up question that's never asked, and if there are media people out there listening, if you have any access to these motherfuckers, the follow-up question that's never asked of these people when they say they have gay friends is why? Why do you have gay friends? Spoiler alert, that motherfucker doesn't have any goddamn gay friends. The poor hairdresser who had to do his daughter's hair and makeup for her wedding. Mike, that doesn't count. A minute or two in a room with a gay person does not give you a gay friend. In a related development, I have a Christian friend. Matthew Vines, I've talked about him on the show before, is the author of God and the Gay Christian. He is going to be on the show later. We're going to have a very, very long talk about Christianity and homosexuality. Uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating for me. I hope you guys enjoy it. But my Christian friend coming up on today's show. And you know what? My Christian friend exists. Mike Huckabee. Unlike your gay friends, my Christian friend is not a hologram or a lie. And he's up later on the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight male in the Midwest, and I'm getting married this summer. And there are a lot of gay people in my family and a lot of homophobic people in my fiance's family, uh, not my fiance, thankfully. Do you have any suggestions on how we should say things to her family to prevent them from saying anything horribly offensive? Maybe just telling them now's not the time to be bringing up your views on gay marriage or, or things like that. And on the flip side, is there something I should be saying to the gay people in my family 
not to warn them not to offend. I, I don't care. But to maybe warn them that there are homophobic people in her family. They, they don't know that. And that if anyone says something inappropriate to them, they can come talk to me or my fiance and we can set them straight. So you talk about your side of the family uh, and all down with gay marriage and, and, and lots of gays and pro-queer. And you talk about her side of the family and homophobes. I want to know whose side you are on. <laughs> you, well, you and your fiance. Who, who, show, so who, we're, we're on the side of the gays. Okay. So I think that's something you need to communicate to your family. Right? Okay. It's your wedding. And you don't want them blowing in and saying shitty, horrible things and making a scene. And it wouldn't even be a question of like trying to balance out the feelings on both sides and make everybody feel welcome and comfortable. If we were talking about race, like I'm getting married and, you know, we're, you know, there's African-Americans in my family, but her family's super duper racist, some KKK members. How do we keep the peace at the wedding? Well, you either don't invite the KKK members or you read the KKK members, the fucking riot act before the wedding. Right. Okay. And you say, you know, you don't, you want to communicate to her hateful family members. Now is the, not the time to bring up your views on gay marriage. You know, when the time is for you guys, you and your fiance to bring up your views on gay marriage at your wedding. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be everywhere by then. Well, hopefully, um, but I, I went to a wedding a few years ago. Uh, a couple got married here, good friends of mine and Terry's, and they have a lot of gay friends, and they had a lot of gay friends coming to the wedding. And the bride's family was from California, and they'd all just voted for Prop 8 to ban same-sex marriage in California. This is a few years ago. And there was this, uh-huh. this tension because, oh, you know, she had – there were homophobes in her family who disapproved of gay marriage, and they were getting married, and all their gay friends, including some of their married gay friends, were coming to their wedding, and what would happen? When these, you know, oil and water people mixed, what would happen? And a beautiful yeah. thing happened. The they they had as a reading at their wedding, and one of their gay friends got up on the at, uh, on the altar and read this incredibly beautiful passage about what marriage means. And they had a few readings, and you know, someone would read something, a poem, a passage, and then identify where it was from. This was from Mark, or this was from, you know, this poet. And this person got up, a f- close friend of the, the couple's, and read this thing, and it was a beautiful thing about what marriage is and what it means and ha- what it's meant historically, what it means to people as individuals. And every the whole place, everyone's nodding. That is what marriage means. Both sides of the aisle, everybody nodding, like all the homos and, and, and progressive straight friends of the groom and the family of the bride who had all just voted against marriage equality, all nodding that what marriage means. And then the uh, reader identified the source of the text and it was the Massachusetts state Supreme court ruling legalizing same sex marriage in Massachusetts. And it was this beautiful, subtle knife that was slipped into the ribs of all the homophobes at the wedding because they had just agreed with everything that was in that reading. And then they found out where that reading was from. And it was this gesture from the couple letting all of their queer friends know where they stood. And this, these are how social norms evolve, right? That the people who are yeah. small-minded, bigoted anti-Semites or racists or homophobes begin to feel like they're in the minority and they can no longer safely assume that everywhere they go, people are going to agree with their retrograde hatreds and bigotries. And you think we should say that to them before too or just yes, yes. make it clear? You, should, okay. you should say it before and you should say, it, you should say something during the wedding. I, I, you know, what state are you marrying in? <laughs> Ohio. Okay. Gay people right now cannot get married in Ohio, right? No, no, they can't. And you're going to have gay friends at the wedding? Yes. 
as a gay person at weddings of my straight friends before I could legally marry, it meant a lot to me when the couple, sometimes in the program or during the service, would say, we think that all loving couples should be able to marry regardless of sexual orientation. And it was just this gesture, this acknowledgement that here we are doing this thing that you, our friends who are gay are not yet allowed to do. And we recognize their yeah. injustice and we love and support them. And that meant a lot to us. And you guys should fucking do that. You guys should yeah. say something. Whose side are you on? Right? You, you're talking yeah. about the groom side, the bride side. And I want to say, whose side are you on? Now is the time to take sides. And whose feelings are you going to hurt? These, the homophobes on your, your girlfriend's or your fiance's side of the family. But this is how social yeah. change works. The people who hold these views, these bigoted views, begin to feel self-conscious and uncomfortable in their own skins at weddings like yours. And they begin to rethink their positions because of that discomfort. My family does not know that her family is homophobic. Do you think that I should give them any warning that this might come up or that I should not put them on edge that day? <laughs> Absolutely, you should give them warning. Now, most okay. people, even a lot of homophobic people, to give homophobic people their due, to give them some credit, don't run around just burst, you know, blurting out shitty homophobic things for no reason whatsoever. You know, they're unlikely to run through your wedding and your wedding reception saying, Oh, I'm glad that we're getting, I'm glad my little girl got married in a state where fags can't get married. Like I, I really yeah, doubt. Well, that. I mean, but there will certainly be same sex couples dancing together, things like that. And do you think that her homophobic relatives have it in them to go up and tap that same sex couple on the shoulder and say, you're disgusting. <laughs> uh, I hope not. Do you think it's a possibility? Uh, no, they might, scowl and make a comment but no i don't think they would do that then tell all your gay friends that if there's any scowling or comment making directed at them that they have your permission to begin making out on the dance floor <laughs> that they can take it Don't to do. 10 and if that just inspires all the homophobes to gather up their shit and go awesome better party yeah um yeah that sounds good to me hopefully this will help bring your family around Help bring her family around. It helped bring my friend with the homophobic relatives, parents, siblings. It helped bring them around because they were suddenly in this room with all these gay couples, including gay couples with children, and they'd never really met gay people before. And yeah, so this, I, I mean, I think that's the case here too. They're from a, a town in the south that I, I don't think has a lot of out people, and, and I don't think they've had a lot of exposure. Right, and so this what had been this abstract threat, you know, that the gay boogeyman was suddenly the person who was helping set up the tables with them and the person that they were making polite conversation with because they could honor basic principles of social decorum and not create a scene at somebody else's wedding and ruin it potentially. And it helped yeah. them see through, see past their own bigotry. And I don't think that her family today would vote unanimously against marriage equality after her wedding. So you can regard this, you know, the, the, the coming meeting of her family and your family and your friends and her friends as this fraught, horrible, impending disaster, or you can regard it as something that could be an agent of change, that it could really help them get over it. And as a gay yeah. person, as a gay person, I have to tell you that in my sort of insulated life, I rarely encounter these bigots unless I'm going to like Christian fundy land or some Republican thing. And Sometimes it's like a nostalgic little trip down memory lane to encounter somebody who has a problem with your homosexuality. And rather than yeah, trauma come up in my life a lot over this. Right. And rather than being traumatized by it, I'm, I'm a little like, oh, this is fun. Oh, you have a problem with me being gay? Hee <laughs> hee. 
Here, I'm going to put my hand in my boyfriend's pants. I'm going to slip it into his pocket. Ooh, now how do you feel about me being gay? Like, I'm not traumatized by the bigots anymore. They have no power over me. Um, so you, okay. so I, I think when you go and talk to your gay friends about it, you don't necessarily have to go to them from a, a place of, I'm so sorry, and this is going to be so horrible for you. But this could actually be a fun little romp in bigot land. Well, I hope, I hope it goes well. And congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. But you got to say something during the service, before the service. You got to say something. You got to take a stand. Whose side are you on? You got to speak up at this wedding. Yeah, you're right. And we will. Okay, good. Have fun. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Hi. I am a straight female, although I look at bisexuality sometimes. My husband passed away two and a half years ago. I am 56 years old. I am now dating again, and I've dated only two people. The second one now is in controversy with my daughter. Uh, who is lives in another state. I am dating a cowboy here in the Southwest, and I actually really like him. And we have a great time together, and we have a lot in common, except for one thing that my daughter is upset about, but I'm trying to get her to see that it would be okay because he might learn from me. He doesn't like gay people, and... I'm kind of fucking pissed off about that, but we get along every way else. Actually, it's wonderful. The sex is freaking awesome, and we are just really into each other. However, we don't fight about that kind of stuff. We don't have arguments. He's not moving in. I'm not moving in. We're just dating, and I have no problem uh, sharing how I feel about how I support all gay people and all the good things and all the righteous things. And I have lots of friends that are gay and I am going to be going to a drag queen show in El Paso. And I'm so excited and therefore opposites attract. So what are your thoughts on that? I think what you say to the cowboy is, look, do you like me and the sex you're having with me more than you dislike gay people? If so, shut the fuck up about how much you dislike gay people. Stuff it down. I don't want to hear about it. And then expose him to some of your gay friends. Drag him to a drag show. And give him permission to be uncomfortable. Instead of saying you shouldn't feel the feelings that you're feeling about gay people, give him permission to say that instead of I don't like gay people or I hate gay people – I'm not familiar with gay people. I don't know any gay people. I've always been uncomfortable around gay people. And give him permission to be squicked out by gay sex. You don't have to give him permission. He is already squicked out by gay sex. Some people look at their squickiness around gay sex and think, because this makes me uncomfortable, I then, to be consistent, must hate gay people. You know what? I don't hate straight people and straight sex squicks me the fuck out. That it is possible to, you know, if you dwell on or think about somebody else's sex to be a little like discomforted by it. There's some kinds of gay sex that squick me out just because you can get an arm in your ass. I don't think you should. Not that fisting is exclusively gay, but I think it's more popular among the gays and it kind of freaks me the fuck out. Doesn't mean I hate gay people or gay guys who fist because fisting kind of freaks me out. Makes me uncomfortable. But I don't go to I hate fist fuckers from that squicks me out. And you can say to him, you can be squicked out by two dudes fucking or kissing. That can make you a little bit uncomfortable. You don't have to then round that up to I hate gay people. 
And liking gay people doesn't mean you have to sit down and watch gay porn or think it's nifty when a dude puts a dick in another dude's ass. Any more than a gay dude thinks it's nifty when you put your great big cowboy dick in my twat. So I guess what I'm saying is you should continue to date this guy while challenging him affectionately, thoughtfully, in a friendly way, challenging him to rethink his positions uh, and exposing him along the way to, to some of your gay friends. Like I said earlier to the guy who's having the wedding and there's some homophobic family members, there are gay people out there who now consider it kind of a sport to hang out for a little bit every now and then with the homophobe. We used to be, we used to be in a sea of homophobes, right? Everywhere we went, there were homophobes. Now, you know, for a lot of us, you know, encountering a homophobe can feel like encountering a dodo. It's like, oh, wow, they still make you. Thought you were extinct. Aren't you cute, you homophobe? If you have friends who feel that way, who wouldn't be traumatized by having dinner with your cowboy who's a bit of a homophobe who might think it was kind of a fun trip down memory lane to hang out with a homophobe, invite them to dinner and invite him to dinner. And if you have a friend who's like me who can talk about anything without having a feeling or a sad about it or a big hurt or being triggered or traumatized – Invite that friend over and serve a couple of stiff drinks and let the cowboy say whatever's on his mind and let your friend or friends respond in kind with whatever's on their mind without it escalating to some sort of thermonuclear bigot queer war. Just have it out. So have that dinner party and tell your daughter to shut up. This is the guy you're dating and you you think this is a problem too and you're working on it. Have that dinner party. Invite your – Thick-skinned, game, fun, want to encounter the dodo, homophobe, queer friends over, and then give us a call and tell us how that went. Hi, Dan. So my girlfriend and I have been together for five years. Uh, We're both in our mid-20s. She's been pretty clear that she is against uh, an open relationship. But in about a couple of months or so, she's going abroad for about a year. And while we're talking about how we're going to stay exclusive with each other while she's abroad, she uh, told me that if I was not sure, she would like to know so that while she's abroad, if she meets someone really nice, you know, she doesn't have to turn them down if I'm not sure about her. Well, at that moment, I kind of wanted to just tell her to go for it, that I'd be okay with her like having a, a fling while she's abroad. And I didn't want her to think that, you know, this is me just trying to get permission in return so that I can go have sex while she's abroad. I just wanted her to open up the idea of having an open relationship in the future. So, you know, I kind of wanted to tell her this would be a one-way deal, like a one-sided deal where she would have permission while I promise to stay exclusive to her while she's abroad so that she feels comfortable about it. Because I'm thinking in the long run where if I were to commit to marrying her, that I would want a uh, monogamous relationship to be part of our relationship. I guess I just don't want to shake her trust in me right before she goes abroad. So is this a good opportunity for me to express how I feel, uh, an opportunity for her to explore an open relationship? Or is this something very dangerous where I just make her lose all trust in me and start making her suspicious about whether I'll stay faithful while she's abroad. What you're proposing is some sort of deep cover jiu-jitsu reverse psychology on your girlfriend that 
give her permission to sleep with other people while she's away because you want an open relationship. And by remaining faithful to her while she's gone, that proves that you're the guy that she should have an open relationship with and she can trust you in an open relationship because you didn't have sex with other people while she was having sex with other people while she was abroad. But if you listen to what she's saying to you, if you're not sure about me, that seems to indicate that in a committed relationship, she only wants monogamy. That if you're sure about her, if she is the one person that you want to be with or one of the ones, there is no one. If she is one person that you could see yourself committing to for life, she envisions that to be a monogamous commitment. If you're sure it's monogamous and what you're saying is you want monogamish, you want an open relationship and a committed relationship, committed monogamous. But she's saying that committed for her is monogamous. My advice to you during this year abroad would be for you two to stay in touch, for you two to put your relationship in a state of suspended animation. She is free to do what she wants while she's away, including date or see other people. And you are likewise free to do that while at the same time maintaining your connection and staying in touch and communicating and talking to each other, but not necessarily disclosing every thing that happens, every tongue that goes into your mouth or every tongue that goes into hers while you're away from each other because that will just make you both paranoid and insecure. And then when you come back together after that year, if the spark is still there, if the affection is still there and you guys are still tight, despite the fact that you both messed around with other people, that is the best proof, I think, and may help her see that you can have a committed relationship and some shit on the side too. They can be committed to each other but also have the occasional sexual adventure with somebody else and outside sexual contact without that taking anything away from who you two are and what you two mean to each other. So rather than this weird, like you get to, I don't get to, and that'll show you that I should be able to, and you shouldn't be insecure about it. Cause I, da, 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 da. how about equal, honest, you're both free during this year to explore and do whatever, stay in touch, come back together at the end of that year, reconnect, and if you're still good, great. That proves that you can mess around with other people and still be good, still be great, and still be committed, which is what you want. Committed, monogamous. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight lady in my 30s. I'm getting married in less than a month, but I really need advice um, about what our last name should be. I'm a total feminist, and I think that names should be passed down to the female side. And I just feel really weird about changing my name, and I and I don't want to. Uh, and I like my name. I like that it ends with a hard consonant, and I don't like that his name ends with a soft vowel. My fiancé got his name from his father, who he was really, really close to, and he was a totally amazing guy. Everybody says he was amazing, um, even people who really tell it like it is. And his dad died eight years ago. And I got my name from my dad, who was kind of a total disaster and didn't pay child support and wasn't there for us and got married six times. And he loved us as much as he could, but he wasn't a mature dad. And uh, my fiancé really wants us to have the same last name, and we both agree that if we took one name, it's his dad's, that's the one that deserves to be carried on. But it feels really weird to me to change my name. So my fiancé thinks I should take his name, but he'll take mine if I won't take his, which is awesome of him. But I just want us to hyphenate because his, well, I just feel really sad about him losing his name. And I, and I think that we should put his name first and my name second. And if we have kids, we should just give the kids his name. 
Um, but he wants the whole family to have the same last name. And we both agree that we don't want the kids to be saddled with a hyphenated name. So what should we do? Not everybody listens to the fine print at the end of the outgoing message when they call into the show uh, to leave a question, but you're legally obligated to take my advice. Actually, this is not an advice show. This is a binding arbitration podcast, and you are now legally obligated to do exactly what I'm going to tell you to do, um, as is everyone who calls the show. You keep your fucking name. He keeps his fucking name. And when you have a kid, his last name is that kid's middle name and your last name is that kid's last name. If you have more than one kid, kids can share the same middle name. You avoid the hyphenate problem and you keep both family names in play. So you have two kids. They have their own unique first names and they have the same middle and last names to keep both your family name in your family and his beloved father's family name in the family. And then if he, because he really wants everyone to have the same last name, if he really feels so strongly about that, he can change his fucking last name to your fucking last name and change his middle name to his father's last name, his old last name. And you can change your middle name to his beloved dad's middle name. Everybody in the family can have the same fucking middle name and you keep both Dads, both names in the family, and you've honored your feminist principles and your shitty father, and he's honored his lovely father and gotten what he wanted in the end, which was everybody has the same last name in this family. And everyone will have the same middle name in this family. Problem solved. Hey, Dan, this is the, the straightest, straightest Chanel. Essentially, my problem is I'm trying to officially come out as bisexual to my wife of eight years, and She's already have known about some some of my activity, not sexual activity with with. Uh, I've, ne- I've never had sex with, with the the same sex before, but I'm definitely attracted. Um, in the past during high school, I did some some makeout sessions, but that's it. But as far as how I want to be identified, uh, I want to come out as bisexual to her and. Just recently, she's found some things in my phone, my history and things like that. And she just, you know, she feels, she seems like she, she just ignored the, the previous time she's caught me. And she's, so, she's shocked every time. But I feel she shouldn't be shocked. I mean, this is who I am. And she's known me for eight years. And, you know, she, she, at some point, she should be comfortable with it. If not, then I just need to know what should our next move be. So what you're saying is at some point, as your wife discovers gay porn on your phone and on your computer, at some point, she should really get comfortable with the idea that you're bi, that this is something that she needs to do for you without you having to actually come out to her yourself, which you have neglected to do. Uh, That's really getting it backwards. It's on you to come out to her. You need to get comfortable enough with yourself to to tell her that you're bi – before she can get comfortable with the idea that you're bi. Right now, there's this big silent lie at, at the heart of your relationship. This not lie necessarily, but this unsaid truth. This thing that is that she doesn't know what it is. She could be thinking that you're gay and closeted, and that you've been lying to her all your life about who you are, and then you aren't really in love with her. That you're not romantically or sexually attracted to her, and she could be dying inside. 
when she finds this porn and not and you seem to think that because she's found it multiple times she's found this gay porn on your phone multiple times that it's really on her to get comfortable with the idea that you're bi and then I guess bring that to you and, and invite you to come out to her as bi when she may be just stuffing that down in terror about what that means for her and your marriage and your future together and your kids if you have kids you don't mention if you have kids she may be in denial about what she's found because actually engaging with it head on is terrifying because she thinks not my husband is bi but my husband is gay so it's on you dude it's on you to go to her and say listen there's something i should have told you before we got married and I, I need to tell you now because I don't want you thinking that I don't love you and I'm not attracted to you and I'm not sexually attracted to you because I am. Those times that you've found guy on guy, dude on dude, man on man, porn on my phone, it's not because I'm gay. It's because I'm bi. I've never had sex with a dude. I've never been with a man. I had a makeout session in high school. But I've always been aroused also by man on man a little bit. And I should have told you that. And then you need to fucking apologize for not having come out to her before you married her, for letting her assume that you were straight, which is a completely rational assumption for a woman to make about the man who has proposed to her and has been putting his dick in her, apologize to her for not sharing this sooner and for letting it go on like this, for letting her find porn and then thinking that the way this works is she accepts you as bi and then tells you that and invites you to come out to her officially. No, no, no. That's not the way it works. Ovary up. Go to her. Come out to your wife. It'll probably come as a relief to her to find out that you're bi. So I guarantee you, I, I could probably look through my mail. I'll find a letter from your wife. My husband is gay. He looks at gay porn. I look at his phone. It's gay porn. She may be devastated, too devastated to even broach, too terrified to broach the subject. Because if she did broach the subject, it could mean the end of the marriage. So it may come as a huge relief to her to know that broaching the subject finally, which you're going to do, does not mean the end of the marriage necessarily. It just means she knows you better and that your sexuality and your erotics include her. You say you've been trying to come out as bi to your wife for eight years. No, you haven't. You've been leaving little porn surprises around for her to find. That's not trying to come out as bi. That's cowardly and un I don't think with malicious intent on your part, but – the result was you've probably been torturing your wife for eight years. She's probably in agony about this. So stop trying to come out by leaving super secret porn messages on your phone and go open your mouth and tell her the truth. Hi, Dan and Tick Bobby at, at Risk Youth. This is Mary. I'm calling from Lynchburg, Virginia. I'm a 23-year-old straight female. Um, this is actually in regards to a work environment question. I am from Lynchburg, as I said, and it's very, we're home of Liberty University. And as great as it is, it comes with a lot of very stereotypical white, right wing Christians. And as someone who's very liberal and very open and very accepting of all people, I'm very GGG. Um, it's a little tough sometimes. I have one coworker in particular that will make comments. I was talking about my cousins who recently got married and they just had a baby boy. They're gay. And, you know, we're all excited for them and, you know, was gushing about that. And she made the comment of, oh, they need to go read the good book. 
I really wanted to come back and said, no, I think you really need to read the good book, Missy. I take it to my supervisor, and my supervisor talked to her, and about, you know, two days of cold shoulder silence, and that was about it. And then, you know, a couple months later, I'm getting comments about how, oh, we have um, coworkers in India, oh, they don't speak English, or comments about how, you know, wife beating is okay, and it's all small little comments, but it's, and people kind of just don't know what to say to them, so people just kind of keep quiet about it, or it's just socially acceptable to laugh, and it's really hard to deal with at work, and I'm wondering what advice you can give on how to combat this, what to say back to her, if I should say anything back to her, if I should just take it to HR and just keep making complaints until this woman is fired. She is a a semi-nice lady. Like, I can get along with her just fine if we don't talk about, you know, politics or religion or anything like that, which you're not supposed to, but it comes up anyway. I'm just looking for advice. I'm kind of at my wit's end with holding my tongue when I know it's wrong and I shouldn't hold my tongue, but I don't want to create a really awkward work environment. At first I thought, oh, this is a person uh, living in a shitty place that's filled with shitty people. Uh, And my advice then typically is, why not move? You don't have to stay in a shitty place. You're not nailed to the floor in a shitty place. But, you know, your question is basically how do you talk with this one shitty person, as it turns out, the more I listen to your call, is it really about this one lady at work who holds a lot of shitty views, uh, particularly anti-gay views and you could really boil your question down to how do you talk with a right-wing anti-gay Christian in a respectful way that draws them out, that acknowledges that they're generally decent. Maybe they think of themselves as decent. I'm not so good at that, actually. I get kind of ranty. So we brought somebody in who's good at that, actually, who's made it his life's mission to talk these otherwise nice and decent right-wing anti-gay Christian shitty people off their homophobic ledges. Matthew Vines is the founder of the Reformation Project and the author of God and the Gay Christian, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Before we get to the question, give the nice people at home uh, the last three years of your life. Just the quick summary of how you came to be nationally prominent in this movement to talk evangelical Christians out of their anti-gay bigotry. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you for your support ever since three years ago when I posted a video online, this hour-long talk that I gave at a church in Wichita, Kansas. At about, your church? No, it was oh, not it was the your church home I grew church. up in okay. because they would not have let that happen. Ah. <laughs> um, I actually had to go to the most progressive mainline church in town uh, that was the only one that would let me do that. Wow. And now things have changed. And now there are other churches in Wichita that want to have me come speak. But at the time, that wasn't the case. So in a nutshell... I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, in a conservative evangelical church. Graduated high school 2008, went to Harvard for undergrad, which was really different. And by my third semester there, came to terms with the fact that I was gay, which I was not thrilled about because – It brought you into conflict with the the faith in which you were raised, with your family, with your church. family and all these things. Uh, There was no precedent for any kind of acceptance for people who came out. And so the people my parents were closest to – the only we had a friend who'd come out two years before and he just never came home because he knew that people did, wouldn't want him around anymore. And frankly, he was right about enough people that that was probably, you know, it was an understandable decision. But so I went home, tried to I came out to my parents. They were not where I was, but they were willing to sort of hear me out. And my dad in particular was convinced that homosexuality was a sin based on his understanding of the Bible. 
but he kind of admitted that his understanding of the Bible was very superficial on this issue. He knew a lot about a lot of other things in the Bible, but he'd never actually been challenged to go back and look any more deeply into this. And so I asked him very earnestly to, and because he loves me, he said that he would. Uh, We spent several months, I actually took a whole semester off from school at first to study this with him. And about half a year later, he really was starting to change his perspective. Mm -hmm. He and my entire family now are 100% supportive of me being gay, wanting to eventually marry somebody of the same sex, and also of trying to spread this message much more widely throughout the church. So that's why I posted this hour-long video. Okay, but that's just coming out to your family. You went beyond that. That was the beginning. You took some time off your studies. You left Harvard, which is kind of major, and dug into the Bible and then wrote this really amazing hour-long speech that you recorded where you unpacked what the Bible actually has to say, in your opinion, about homosexuality and why it isn't. Uh, the Bible doesn't say what these right-wing evangelical anti-gay Christians claim that it does, that it doesn't actually buttress their homophobia in the way that they believe it does with this, these casual, shallow readings of the Bible. And you put this video up, and it's really amazing. Um, and I was in support of it, and I thought it could help a lot of people, so I helped spread the word. Which and I greatly that, appreciate And now this is what you do. You, you know, you've written this book that's based on your research, and now you founded the Reformation Project, which is about doing what? The Reformation Project is a nonprofit organization that works to train Christians in what I call non-affirming churches, which is perhaps different which is, language than what you would use. Probably where this woman goes, this woman in liberty. She definitely goes to a non-affirming church. Um, some some people take issue with that and they say that sounds way too nice. However, um, there's a whole spectrum of sort of people's because homophobic, bigot, bigoted, shitty ass churches. Just too many syllables. That's a lot of syllables. That's a lot of (laughs) syllables. And I always – what I'm trying to do is since I'm trying to engage people relationally, I always want to approach them with as much respect and uh, grace as I can. And some people – I don't follow respect and grace. (laughs) Uh, You totally lost me there. Approach people with respect? Well, so so part of the problem is that in the kind of like gay rights versus conservative Christians battle of the last two generations, it's – often taken place like in the public square in politics. And so a lot of people only see these really nasty portrayals of Christians like Anita Bryant or Brian Fisher or whomever who are out there just railing against LGBT people. That obviously does not make people feel very gracious. But beneath that, the reason those people have had their power is because there have been a lot of much more normal, far less um, vitriolic, not just far less vitriolic, perfectly silent Christians. Right. You know, I get into this whenever I go on TV and I say, and I, I fail to qualify Christian with fundamentalist, evangelical, right wing, anti gay Christian. And you know, you say you drop Christian, and then you get a million emails from people who say we're not all like that. We're not right, all da, da, da. right. And then you're and, like, well, then show it. Then I'm so like, speak the fuck up. Go say that to Tony Perkins and Brian Fisher and Brian Brown and Maggie Gallagher and all these assholes at American Family Association and Family Research Council. They're the ones who claim to speak for all of you and they get away with it because you let them, because you're silent, because there aren't enough Gene Robinsons, because there aren't enough yous, I guess. Right. But there aren't there are- enough John Shores out there getting in their faces and saying, you don't speak for me. But there are kind of two types of not all like that Christians. They're the ones who agree with them that same-sex relationships are wrong, but simply don't think about it nearly as much and don't care about it nearly as much and wouldn't be as vitriolic if they were talking about it. But those people, because they agree with them, still give them a lot of influence because they still are representing 
the same belief. They're just expressing it in a far less kind, more destructive way. And so that's why people like my dad would have fallen into that camp for a long time. He was against same-sex marriage. He voted against same-sex marriage at the ballot box in Kansas in 2005. He regrets that now. Now, at the same time, I did not talk to my parents about um, their voting choices last fall because there's there are a lot of complicated layers there. Um, so I can't actually tell you who they voted for. And I don't think they would want me to tell you who they voted for anyway. I have the same relationship with my dad. Every four years, we get very quiet. The communication breakdown. Every four years around a presidential election, we get very – because we know that it's just a minefield. All right. Now let's right. let's get to this woman's question. <laughs> right, right. She has this right-wing, anti-gay, uh, Christian coworker. It sounds like it's just one who also holds some other uh, idiotic beliefs uh, about Muslims and about uh, immigrants. Uh, but specifically, how would you advise this – instead of continuing to run to HR and filing complaints and getting this woman she says is otherwise pretty pleasant in trouble at work, how does she engage with this woman about the gay shit constructively, respectfully, all the things that I am incapable of giving her any advice on how to do because I just blow up? Well, it does depend oftentimes on your relationship with that person and what I – tend to focus on is getting people who are in the same church as this person and who share the same beliefs about She has to join her church? First, no. thing, first thing, join this woman's no, church. No, she does not have to do that. That's probably not going to work. But it the oftentimes there are some people – there are some people – this woman does not sound like one of those people whom you could engage with even if you don't have a huge amount of things in common. Unfortunately, based on what she said about this woman, it does not sound like she would be in that category. And so with people like that – Typically, the only way that you can start to chip away at their certainty about their prejudices is by getting other people in their peer group, their direct peer group at their church, their Bible study, who, whom they respect, to start to be sounding different notes on these topics. And so for this caller, I don't know, she probably doesn't have that much control over all of those factors. And so outside of that, I mean, I'm not going to be ultra optimistic that, oh, you can get her to start sounding far more sensitive and respectful toward all these different groups of people she seems not to like. That may be a little far-fetched at this point. But when you are in the right situation with somebody, or maybe she knows somebody else at her church, then she could pass on some of these resources where I always try to – when I'm engaging with somebody, there's kind of a mixture of legitimate and illegitimate concerns from my perspective. It does not mean I agree with even what I think are the legit concerns, but I understand and can respect them. So with conservative Christians on the gay stuff, I don't think it's a legitimate concern if you're just talking about pedophilia and bestiality or – And we adopt children because we want to rape them. Oh, okay. That's way that's way extreme. Or well, even just just want to throw this out there. I was once sitting in my kitchen listening to the radio. NP fucking R, and somebody right wing Christian gets on the radio and says, "Gay male couples adopt boys because they want to rape them." Horrific. And my son locks eyes with me, and I had like, "How do you pr- how do you prove the negative at that point? We have no intentions to ever rape you." <laughs> like we're, that's not going to happen. That's not why we adopted. They're lying. Like that was a real. That was a moment that's so, where so horrific. DJ will never ever come around to liking Christians because of what was said about his parents' intention, how unsafe he was made to feel in his own home with his own parents by a – and and I'm like – I find myself sometimes with him going, your grandmother that you loved so much, a Christian. Like I'm like making the Christians are good and decent people argument to my son. 
Me. Think on that, Christians out there listening. If I'm having to make the Christians are good and decent arguments, it's not your responsibility to do that. And I agree that actually, if Christians want to have a better public image, then more of them who are not all like that need to start saying it and showing it and not just chiming in and saying, well, I didn't sign this terrible anti-gay declaration that came out recently. The Manhattan Declaration. No, the one just was just signed by 50 Catholic and evangelical leaders saying that gay marriage is a graver threat than divorce to marriage. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and it's just like, well, don't tell me you didn't sign it. What did you sign? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's, and certainly like that's kind of what I'm, hoping to help to shift. It is a gradual long-term process. So with this woman, um, one option is if you know other people in her church who are a bit more open or reasonable, that's when you can address their more legitimate concerns, which are they are just struggling with the interpretation of, of certain passages in scripture. Which we'll get to. I want to talk to you about. Right. And so like that's what I wrote my book for is for people who are actually open to listening and learning. Okay. Let's – I'm going to throw out there. Let's say this woman isn't the member of a church. Like if, some people are member of churches, church. not a member of any church, but considers herself a Christian, doesn't go to church, doesn't go to Bible study. There is a lot. There are a lot of people out there who think that they're right with God, that they're good Christians if they just hate gay people. Like that's how low the bar is set. Their faith requires nothing of them personally, no sacrifices. They can have premarital sex. They can be Bristol Palin. They can do whatever. They can marry and divorce and marry and divorce and suck a million dicks and they're good with God if they hate homos. They're out there. You know they're out there, right? How do you reach them? That is – basically I would say some of those people are not the first candidates to be reached. I look at everybody in the context of their community and in every church community, there's going to be a subset of people who have a intense – negative um, feeling toward the LGBT community, typically you can't engage those people until you engage the other people who have much more passively held negative feelings. But are, but if you can engage them in the right ways, relationally and culturally, personally. So there are people you write off. You look for the persuadables. You're not going after Brian Fisher. I, I, there are people I postpone <laughs> engagement with. That's what I would say. I don't want to write anyone off permanently, but Brian Fisher is and Brian not Fisher. Someone... For those of you who don't know, he's the American Family Association director of analysis and radio host, who has said things like uh, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Jews or Muslims in the United States. That Jews should have to convert to. Christianity if they want to immigrate to the United States. Also that there should be an underground railroad run by Christians to kidnap children who've been adopted or born to same-sex couples, which is another great conversation I had to have with my son. When he said that, and of course DJ being a kind of a well-known child with gay parents, we had to go to him and say, somebody is suggesting that kids with gay parents get kidnapped and we thought we should have a conversation with you about – Somebody comes to school and says that we sent them to pick you up. That's not true. If somebody asks you to get in the car because they we sent them, that's not true. Like what a great conversation to have to have with your kid because somebody at the Christian American Family Association. And with people like Brian Fisher, respectful, reasoned sort of engagement is not going to go very far. Those are the sorts of people who the best way for Christians to speak up about that is to say you shouldn't have a platform. At all, not just oh, we're going to try to engage with you about your arguments on your platform because your arguments are. Let's so engage with absurd. you about your argument about kidnapping other um, people's children. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there are some people that I write off at least for the near term future, as in they they almost cannot change their minds until there are a significant number of other people in their peer group or church 
or Bible study who have changed their minds. But do you sometimes look at them and say, I just got to wait for you to die? There's like a generation or two that's just got to go. I would not. I No, I don't I don't. You want Brian that. Fisher to live forever. No one. I mean, everyone's not going to live forever. But the thing is, it's dangerous to get into this mindset of, oh, if only these we have these general generational changes because there are still a lot of young people in these ultra conservative church communities who are not about to change their minds without a more systematic direct comprehensive engagement and so that's why i don't want to just sort of take a more passive approach to things all right will you hang out and take another question yeah hi jay and the tech savvy address use so i'm calling about my little sister she's about to turn 13 and has recently come out to my mom and me about being a lesbian. Though we are a Christian family, my family really has no problem with her being gay. The problem is that she goes to a very religious private school, one that doesn't teach about love, but teaches about hatred for gay people and anyone who's different. My sister is a super anxious kid and is constantly trying to please everyone. She has expressed a lot of worry about going to hell for being gay, and this breaks my heart. I don't know what to say to her or how to help her. I thought since you came from a religious background, maybe you could have some advice for her. I told her about the It Gets Better project, and I was wondering if you had anything else that I could tell her maybe to help make it easier. I know she's going to go through a lot, but I figured you're the guy to ask. 13 isn't too young uh, to read the It Gets Better book, uh, where we have essays uh, by pastors, by religious leaders, by the head of the Lutheran Church in America, by Gene Robinson. Uh, by Pastor Peter Sprinkle. There's a lot of really great stuff in there from religious people that w- could maybe speak to your sister. Is 13 too young to read your book, God and the Gay Christian? No. It might be too young to understand the endnotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't need to understand the endnotes because especially with a question like that, when somebody is anxious about they think they're going to hell, typically this is based on one verse in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Where there's this the unrighteous list. shall not inherit the kingdom yes. of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Right. So in in a many modern Bible translations, the words that were translated effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind have been grouped together to now say men who have sex with men. Some As translations just say homosexuals. Right. That's what it started in the mid 20th century. Then they realized that didn't work because what about the celibate ones? So then they changed it to practicing homosexuals. Mm -hmm. But then they thought, well, we know that that category is anachronistic. So we're just going to say men who have sex with men. That does cause a lot of anxiety for young kids who don't who haven't studied much about the history of biblical translations and the different versions of scripture. And so really, if all you're doing is helping People, Or if you read the chapter on that verse and see the history of the translation there and the disputes among respected Bible scholars about whether or not that should be translated in such a sweeping way, that can provide a lot of relief. Even if you don't understand mm-hmm. some of the historical references and things like that, I think it's still – But the problem worse. here is this 13-year-old lesbian girl is in a conservative Christian school where she's surrounded by people who hate gay people who say that gay people are going to hell. People she may otherwise like, uh, role models, teachers, people she looks up to, authority figures. And also this stuff will be mindlessly repeated by her peers. I think it's negligence on the parents' part to leave this kid who's come out to them in this fucking school. Would you agree? 
Um, I mean, I, I don't know what their options are, but mm-hmm. it's certainly that makes it so much harder because even if you know for yourself that you're not, you know, you're not hell bound for being gay, if a lot of respected people in your life think that, that adds so much of a burden to you. And it is really hard to fully sort of pull yourself out from that what feels like a very oppressive weight of people's beliefs about that. Do you consider yourself an evangelical Christian still? Yes. Do you believe in hell? Yes. Who's going? So if not you, who? I would actually say there's a book that came out just a few months ago on this subject that I loved. It's called The Skeletons in God's Closet by a pastor in Portland. Mm-hmm. And what he argues in that book, it's actually been positively reviewed by a number of conservative Christian publications, even though it's slightly edgy, um, of course, slightly by conservative Christian <laughs> standards. So he argues that it's not our place to say with certainty who is going to hell. And also part of what I don't believe about hell is this idea that hell is here you have earth and then above earth you have heaven and below earth you have hell and people either get plopped down to hell to be tortured eternally or they get plucked up to heaven to play harps eternally. So what do you believe hell is? Well, so, so what I believe hell is, is but this is part of what the pastor argues in his book, is that hell is, it, so if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, it doesn't say that God created heaven, earth, and hell. It says that God created heaven and earth. Those are the only two things that God created hell. There was no afterlife in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, absolutely. The Jewish, the sort of the Hebrew understandings of Sheol are different mm-hmm. um, from what we see in the New Testament. So Christian and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife are not the same. I mean, I do think that there is, even though there's a difference between the Old and the New Testament, I see it in the same way as a lot of other differences where it's building upon what was there. So who's going to hell? You believe in hell. Who's going there? Well, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, there will be people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? perform miracles in your name and prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name. And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you because you didn't do the will of my father. And what is the will of his father that they didn't do? Well, he didn't explain in that particular text, (laughs) but he does explain more in Matthew 25, where he says that the judgment day will come and people will come to him and he will say, because you did not feed me when I was hungry and clothe me when I was naked and shelter me and visit me in prison, therefore get away from me. Mm Mm-hmm. And they'll say, when did we ever do that to you? He'll say, whenever you did that or didn't do that for the least of my brothers and sisters, you so didn't do So do you believe do in universal me. salvation, that you don't have to be a Christian or believe in Christ to go to heaven? If you're a nice Jew who visited sick people and gave clothes to the naked, you're going to heaven? It's a little more complicated than that. What I'm saying is that in— look, I want you to look at Nancy and tell her she's not going to heaven. <laughs> I am not going to— I'm not going to tell someone that I have some— hyper certainty about their eternal status. That sounds pretty presumptuous. However, I think it's just important for people. There are passages in scripture where it talks about salvation being determined by one's faith in Christ. And there are other passages that talk about that being determined by one's actions. And so there are, there's a sort of tension within the scriptural witness that I do think can be resolved. And that's why I found this book, it's called The Skeletons in God's Closet, to be really helpful but if on your specific question of can we say all these people are going to heaven, all these people are going to hell based on the what they checked on their religion, on the religion box in the census, it's just not that simple. And we don't have the privilege of certainty of mm-hmm. such like big questions. But at the same time, there's this question of, oh, does this mean then that everybody, as long as you were sort of nice to some people, are going to heaven? And these I don't even like those phrases because the New Testament actually doesn't talk about heaven as this sort of abstract thing, but actually the new heavens and the new earth. Mm -hmm. And if heaven and earth 
were created together. They were torn asunder by evil. And so hell is sort of where e- the reason hell has to exist is because e- evil has to be excised from earth. In order for earth to be flourishing, it can't be tainted by these mm-hmm. evil forces. And so that's what hell, that's the sort of the purpose of hell. It's sort of like the trash bin for all of the evil forces and everybody sort of has a choice. It just seems like a lot of like thought and effort and rationalization <laughs> going into buttressing a belief in some imaginary afterlife that ain't coming. I mean, I don't believe. Right. This is what right. I actually wanted to talk to. Let, let, let's jump to this. What I wanted to talk to you after we answered the question, and I hope we answered your question, caller, about your 13-year-old sister. Please love her. Please support her. Uh, the fact that her parents are supportive and you're supportive is huge and can make all the difference. Uh, talk her down about the shitty people at her school who are being uh, douchebags. Okay. So I was Catholic. I was Christian. I believed. I read the Bible inside and out. I went to a seminary for high school. And when my sexuality brought me into conflict with my faith, my faith collapsed. And, and not like, oh, I'm very sad. My faith collapsed. Like I began pulling at that thread of what the church was telling me about my sexuality and the whole garment unraveled and not just the Catholic garment, the whole garment of imaginary friends, don't mean to be insulting, but belief in things we can't know to be true. Like there are things we can't know and I am suspicious of people who pretend to know what they can't know because there is no There is no proof. And, you know, Christians, you know, 1500 years ago, a thousand years ago, believed in a physical heaven up above and a physical hell down below because science had not yet proven that that was impossible. So uh, the fact that now hell has become much more of an abstraction, I don't think is credited necessarily to Christian thought or Christians becoming more mature, but because Christians have been cornered because you can't say hell is down there because we know what's down there now, right? So I look at your whole project. And, and I support it and it's making the world a better place and it's helping a lot of people. But, but I'm a, I'm a conflicted supporter of it. Right. Cause part of me as an atheist and a rationalist and an empiricist wants to see the church, churches, Christianity continue to be harmed by the homophobia that it, that it clings to. It used to be that the homophobia of the church and the transphobia of the church, but the homophobia of the church harmed queer people. And that has, is now backfiring where people are walking away from their churches, leaving their faiths because they don't believe what their churches are telling them about their gay children or their gay parents or their gay siblings or their gay friends. And we've reached this tipping point where the homophobia the church has profited from for centuries, millennia, not just profited from but reveled in. To the, to the harm, to the destruction of so many queer people, it's finally backfiring. And along comes a guy like you to help walk them away from it, to help diffuse this bomb that now they're holding. They used to throw these bombs at us and they would destroy our lives, the homophobia that the church trafficked in. And now they're stuck with the bomb. Like we threw it back and the the hand grenade's in their hands and it's going to go off. And you come along and you're helping them (laughs) diffuse that bomb. And some part of me doesn't want to see that bomb diffused. I want to see the churches explode and be damaged and destroyed by their homophobia. And I completely understand why you'd feel that way. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do. I don't like. I don't say like, "Oh, you shouldn't feel that way." Like that makes perfect sense. And it's not just like a petty desire for vengeance. It's also like a desire to for a kind of justice. No, no, justice, vengeance, but also like uh, I don't believe, and I think being freed from belief in heaven and hell is is very liberating. 
it, it was very liberating for me. It did make me sort of an immoral hedonist, but it was it's very liberating not to walk around all day wondering what Jesus Christ thinks of what I'm doing at every moment and where I'm going after I die. I know I'm not going anywhere after I die. So how I comport myself in the here and now is what matters and the good I can affect in the here and now is what matters and, and what I can do to the benefit of other humans or mankind in my small way as I also go about living my life and taking my pleasure in it. That's what matters, not like trying to rack up points in heaven because there ain't one. There is no heaven and there is no hell in my opinion. You and see, I wish more – I want to see more people come around to that belief and you're seeing that. You know, The largest, uh, fastest growing group of Americans in the faith column is no faith, right. unaligned. And that doesn't mean they're all atheists. A lot of those people – when you dig into the numbers, a lot of those people are nominally Christians who now are afraid to identify themselves as Christians publicly or reluctant to because they don't want to be associated with the homophobia that has become uh, – you know, they've made homophobia the Tony Perkinses of the world and the Pope Benedicts of the world. They've made it synonymous with Christianity and interchangeable. When you say you're a Christian, you're saying you're an anti-gay bigot and vice versa, almost invariably in the United States. And a lot of people now don't want to be associated with that kind of hatred and bigotry, so they're not identifying as Christians. So right. seeing the damage that homophobia is finally doing to the people who've underwrote it for centuries is like, oh, awesome, payback. And then along comes Matthew Vines. <laughs> I'm going to screw it up. Um, well, a couple of thoughts on this. One is the practical and the other is, from my perspective, sort of the personal. From a practical standpoint, you're totally right when it comes to America – that's not true in Africa. It's not true. It's not true that queer people are being less harmed by, um, by teachings that's and true. norms against same-sex relationships in Africa. The what church we're in seeing Africa, in Uganda, what we're seeing in Nigeria. Right, and actually there is, in... there is a competition between Islam and Christianity in Africa to see who can be more anti-gay than the other because that's what is going to bring in people to church. Is that messed up? Yeah, that's really messed up. But those, I mean, queer people in Africa are suffering on a far greater scale than queer people in America. And that's not to diminish anyone's suffering here, but to acknowledge like, or what we see in the Middle East, where you still have gay men being thrown to their deaths in the public square. And in the Christian uh, column in Africa, that ultimately, I think, is the fault and the responsibility of American evangelicals, because they're the ones who made being homophobic, synonymous with being Christian, being anti-gay. And the more anti-gay you were, the better a Christian you were. And now you have people in Africa who've uh, – and religious leaders in Africa who've been cultivated by evangelical right-wing bigoted religious leaders in the United States who are proving their own Christian bona fides by persecuting gay people. And that definition of the worse you are to gay people, the better a Christian you are, that is an American creation. American evangelical churches exported that. I mean I would say that the situation was exacerbated by the influence of certain American evangelical groups. That's a huge problem. And what that means is even if American evangelicals can never win another national election here, even if they're only a small percentage of the country here, American evangelicals have unparalleled influence over doctrine and beliefs of Christians all around the world. And that's why if there's going to be a change that ultimately helps queer people in Africa – that change has to start in the evangelical church in America. You're not going to get – you're not going to change what everybody thinks here. But if you can start to show that there is mm -hmm. no longer – this is not what defines being a Christian. And if we can get to the point, which is what I'm hoping to accelerate as much as possible, where we have high-profile American evangelical leaders who affirm same-sex relationships and not only that but are vocal and energized in speaking out against – harmful 
practices against the LGBT community that will ultimately help to create the context where queer Africans are safer are well can start right now. They can't even dig themselves out of the ditch because you have already all these layers of um, animosity locally add on to that all of this money and influence from abroad Mm -hmm. that has a huge stake in you not digging yourself out of the ditch. So if we can at least start to take away those layers on top, it doesn't mean then Africa becomes a safer place directly, but I think it creates the context for like LGBT Africans to actually have some hope that. So you're saying through, I need to I need to take a broader view because my desire to see American evangelical churches continue to double down and triple down on their homophobia because that harms them here at home. It, it actually is making it worse for queer people in other parts of the world where evangelicals have much more influence. Partly, and also there are some evangelical groups who, realizing they have lost the culture wars in America, are then becoming more invested in places like Russia and Africa and Asia in wanting to make sure that they can and this is these are not the main like the major evangelical organizations things like world vision or the major megachurch groups would never do this but because they're not vocally opposing it it gives a lot more influence to people who here might be seen as more fringy who people like Scott Lively but when they go to when they go to Uganda and they're the only no american evangelicals are coming and saying don't listen to him mhm and you're He's, trying to create more evangelical Americans who will say, don't listen to him. And say it out fucking loud, not whisper it to me. Yes, yes. Okay. Quickly, before we let you go, this has been a great conversation. Your book, uh, God and the Gay Christian, your uh, lecture that people can still find on YouTube, which is uh, – the book is much uh, longer and broader and and more deeply uh, – I don't want to say research because your speech is amazing, but it just goes into much greater depth. Of course, it's a book. It's not a speech. You try to unpick the lock of the clobber passages as they're known, the seven or eight – Passages in the Bible that are constantly thrown in the faces of LGBT people by religious leaders as just, well, you know, the Bible says this, we can't help it. Nothing we can do about our homophobia, our opposition to same-sex relationships, our opposition to your existence because, look, it says right here. Um, You get pushback from uh, religious conservatives uh, on this. And just as an experiment, I want to hear your analysis of why this doesn't say what it appears to say. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them, Leviticus. That's the ur clobber passage. That's the one that is constantly thrown like a thunderbolt from yes. the pulpits of evangelical churches all over the country. Then when we go, oh, what about Deuteronomy? What about stone your daughters to death on their wedding night? They say, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. And they never <laughs> – they seem to want this Leviticus passage to magically float up into the New Testament at their convenience – and then, you know, all the shit in the Bible, all that knew about slavery that they ignore, right? How do you unpack this passage? How right. do you walk this back from I should be killed and you should be killed? So there are several aspects to this. One, that passage does say what it seems to be saying. This is a prohibition specifically of male same-sex anal intercourse, according to Hebrew scholars Daniel Boyarin and Saul Olian and sort of their – And the reason for that is because in ancient times, in highly patriarchal societies, for a man to be treated as a woman... To be penetrated. ...was highly degrading because women were seen as inferior to men. And so the question... So yeah, the the first thing you can say to that is this is part of the Old Testament. Old Testament laws, and most Christians will agree with this, do not necessarily apply to Christians. Mm -hmm. But some Christians will want to say, oh, but here's one that should and here's why. 
And there'll be certain texts that Jesus reaffirms about love your neighbor as yourself. That's also from the Old Testament. But typically, the reason why Christians say that Leviticus, the Christians by why what I would call non-affirming Christians say that Leviticus still sort of informs our discussion about same-sex relationships today is because they think that the rejection of same-sex relationships is repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1. Support for slavery is repeated in the New Testament, and they just fucking ignore that. This is what I got into huge trouble for saying in front of 3,000 high school students. I remember that. We ignore the bullshit (laughs) in the Bible about slavery. How come we can't ignore the the bullshit in the Bible about human sexuality? The Bible got, as uh, Sam Harris wrote, the Bible got the easiest moral question humanity has ever faced wrong. Slavery. Got it? Wrong. What are the chances it got something as complicated as human sexuality wrong? I say 100%. And we somehow can't ignore what the Bible says about sexuality, about virginity, about menstruation, about gay people, but we can ignore what it says about slavery. The more interesting sort of interpretive move is to try to see a trajectory in scripture of greater uh, dignity for slaves, even like within a context How that does is not this go just as not all a massive apologetics for the failings of the Bible? Because like the, you just see people making these excuses for the Bible and trying to walk the Bible away from what it actually says. No, and I think that this is one of the trickiest – I think slavery is one of the trickiest issues in biblical interpretation and that a lot of Christians have have dealt with it far too casually and unpersuasively. Um, but the way that people, when they try to make an argument in addressing what Scripture says, they're saying Scripture does not say the things that we as 21st century believers would like it to say – but we're, that's, we don't look at Scripture as static. We see Scripture as living. And so we try to see what is the direction in Scripture. If we see movement in Scripture toward greater dignity for slaves, and it talks about how in Christ there is no slave or free, these status, like kind of status will eventually be overcome, then that's where we should continue to move. So even mm-hmm. though Scripture only took us to a certain point, Christians should embrace the movement of that and keep moving forward. We could talk about this all day because we're Bible geeks, you and I, <laughs> but I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Before we go, really quickly, just want to like ask you, are you pro-choice? I don't really engage the political sphere to the point. So that's a political question of saying like what political stance do I take on that? Do you think abortion should be safe and legal? Do I think abortion should – I mean I am going to look at everything kind of from a practical perspective and – is the idea of outlawing abortion going to be a helpful thing? Is that going to lead to safer situations? Will that even lead to fewer abortions? Probably not. And so those are all things that I would want to take into consideration in that. Contraception and access to it. Um, contraception is something that has been largely uncontroversial among Protestants for the last hundred years almost. Premarital sex. Um, premarital sex is something that I am not asking churches to affirm. I think that and I, but that sexual ethics is such a sensitive subject and so I never want to be um just t- I, I don't ever want to be in a preachy state about that. At the same time what I'm trying to do, I think the Christian traditions teaching on marriage and sexuality has obviously had some shortcomings, but I think I, within everything whether it's a person, a church, a tradition, I always want to find the good within it and work to embrace Do you think there can that. be good within a one night stand? I think that there can be good in lots of things that sh- maybe shouldn't be done or shouldn't be affirmed. Um, but yeah, I affirm one night stands around here. I know you do. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying, I mean, can can there be can there be virtues in that? I'm sure that there can. I don't think that those um, determine that issue. But I think the Christian tradition has seen this great value in the idea of keeping covenant and marriage as 
And sex is the kind of sign and seal of a lifelong covenant. Can I just see you working so, so hard to like pry open a crack in evangelical Christianity that you can fit yourself into? It seems like such an effort. Wouldn't it be easier just <laughs> to go, whatever? They're like, there's been a million religions and a million gods, and who knows which one is right? And I'm just going to be a good and decent person. I'm going to ascribe to the moral lessons of the Bible. Like, I believe there's great moral truths in the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Can't you live that life that you think Jesus is saying, you know, how did you treat the sick? How did you treat the hungry? How did you treat the naked? How did you treat the homeless? Live that life without having to engage in this ongoing argument to like wedge that little space, pry that space open in believing Christianity that you can fit yourself into. Well, because I don't just want to fit myself into the existing Christianity. Christianity has tremendous power and I think Christians have a responsibility to use that power in the way that Jesus would have used it, which is not seeking to continually grasp at power and subjugate or oppress other people, but to give up your power for other people. This is where Christianity has gotten the LGBT issue completely wrong in the political sphere is that even if they were right in terms of being uneasy with same-sex relationships. Even if they're right that we're going to hell. There's lots of people you think are going to hell and you're not persecuting them. Christians, according to Jesus, should not be seeking to – they should not be seeking power. They should Mm -hmm. always be giving up power. Christians in the world today have so much power and I want to see Christians use that power in the way that Jesus would use it. One last thing before we let you go. Would you please swear? Just one (laughs) swear. I don't – I don't – I don't know. I mean (laughs) – I've never met a, anybody your age. You can't like bust out one swear. I've never heard you swear. Uh, um, it's not one f bomb. It's, it's not standard practice for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my parents don't swear, and I know that. But they won't listen to my show. They couldn't get this far into the show. You know, they would listen to your show. No, they're, they're, they, they're pretty open people. Um, but they have to be gaping open to listen to my show. Well, oh, they wouldn't listen to it every week, but they would listen. <laughs> they would listen to this one. So you're not going to swear. I, I don't I know what, what to I tell say. You what, I tell you what. We'll, you, you say a swear and we won't put it in this show. We'll just randomly embed it in some show in the future that your parents don't listen to because you won't be listed as a guest. I can't. I don't know. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I knew you couldn't. I just wanted to have some fun. Matthew Vines, his book is God and the Gay Christian, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. His project is the Reformation Project. Look it up online. Thank you so much. Like I was, I really like was taking you on, but I support what you do, and I think it's hugely important. And your point about uh, getting evangelicals off the homophobic ledge to help queers in other countries who are more vulnerable than queers here is really important. Yeah, and for any listeners who are interested in getting involved, our next major conferences are in Atlanta, June 11th through the 13th, in Kansas City, November 5th through 7th. So if you go to reformationproject.org, you can already sign up for those. Hello, Dan. Hello, the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a transgender etiquette question for you. Um, I work at a small little retail shop in the North Country, and we have a regular customer who's a trans woman. Uh, So the situation is that one day I was walking toward the back of the store, and I noticed somebody waiting in line for the women's restroom. And before I noticed it was her, I opened my mouth to say what I would have said to any woman waiting in line for the women's bathroom, which is, oh, feel free to use the men's bathroom. It's exactly the same as the women's, except that it's got a little man sign on it instead of a girl sign. But as soon as I noticed it was her, I I instantly just closed my mouth thinking her experience with womanhood is not the same, and maybe she wouldn't appreciate that. So basically, she just saw me open my mouth and then shove my foot in it, and I worry that... I mean, who knows what she thought I was about to say right there. I could have been about to say something absolutely horrible. So the question is, what should I have done? 
because um, almost by not saying, oh, just use amends, I was kind of saying, you don't pass as a woman. Um, and then <laughs> I'm just not exactly sure what the right thing to do there was. So if you or your callers have advice, I would very much like to hear it. The next time it happens, if it ever happens again, just say it. Say, oh, hey, you know, uh, lots of women use the men's room when the women's room is uh, occupied. Same setup, one door, one stall. You don't have to worry about it. Totally private. Go ahead. Use the men's room if you like. Like all the other women. If you would say it to a woman, say it to her. She's a woman. If she takes issue or thinks there's some implied slight in your Treating her like you would treat any other woman, that's her problem. And if she brings it to you or confronts you about it, you can with confidence say, I said to you what I say to all women who I see waiting in line, that the men's room is free for them to use as well. And I'm sorry that you misconstrued my intent and I had known, you know, I was treating you like I would treat any other person who is a woman waiting in line for the bathroom in this shop. And if she continues to have a problem with it, then she is a truffle problem hunting pig who wants to have problems and you should not make her problems your problems. Hi, Dan. I just heard your response to a caller who was talking about open relationships and finding out a guy had been in one for two months while dating her. Now, whether they had sex or not, that's a freaking problem, okay? It's a waste of our time. I'm trying to get to know somebody who isn't already in a relationship. If they don't tell me that, if they don't disclose that, that is a big waste of my time. I think it's really important to disclose that pretty damn early on. Yeah, get to know you. Maybe two dates, possibly. But don't waste our time, people. Hi, Dan. So I would actually argue that um, the problem with this whole situation is this assumption of monogamy that just seems to sort of underlie relationships by default. If she didn't sit down with the guy and ask him if he was dating or fucking anybody else, I'm not sure that she really had a right to expect that he wasn't dating or fucking anybody else. Um, and that hopefully other people can learn a lesson from this, that if you want your partner to be exclusive, you should ask him to be. Hey, Dan, I have a comment for the woman uh, on the last episode that was upset about her man shaving his soon-to-be uh, balding head. Girl, have you had your pussy eaten by a bald-headed dude? It feels really nice to rub around on that smooth head. I think you'll like it. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Matthew Vines on Twitter at VinesMatthew. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.